0: And we went uh dive right back into the book of Acts. So, um, last time we, we left off in May, we left off sort of in the middle of chapter 9, having read sort of the first part of. Saul's conversion story. And so we're going to pick that story up starting in verse 19. And we're going to read through verse 31. Uh, we'll just remind you if you have a copy of God's word, you will be greatly blessed and helped today. There aren't going to be any words on the slide and so I encourage you to have a copy of God's word open. If you need some, there's some in the back. And uh, but you'll be helped today. I'm going to read it our section in its entirety. I'll pray and then we'll dive right in. This is Acts chapter 9 beginning in the second half of verse 19. It says this. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is referring to Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not... Come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him. In a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given to us, Lord. We ask that uh, just as we learn from it this morning, um, Lord, that uh, we would not just learn from it, but that you would give us a hunger, a desire, a longing for more and more of you and more and more of your word, Lord. I pray that you would help conform us and shape us into the very people that you you have designed and called us to be as your people, Lord, by your word. Pray that your spirit would be here, that he would be at work among your people, Lord, and that um, you would use these truths, which we believe to be eternal, Lord, and we ask that you would write them on our hearts. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you remember, if you were with us when we started studying the book of Acts, what we have said is that the, the book of Acts is really about the ongoing work of Jesus. This is... Toward the end of the second major section of the book of Acts, which started in verse 6 chapter 6, verse 8, where we begin to learn about the mission, um, how it expands from Jerusalem to Samaria and to other parts of the world. This section is really about the foundation of Christian mission expanding throughout the world. What we see in the second section is is the fruition, the coming of being of what God said would happen, what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The second section of Acts here sees verse chapter 1 verse 8 start to actually take root and happen. If you were to go back and read the Gospels, remember Luke is the author of the book of Acts and he also wrote an account of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. And if you were to read the Gospels, what you would see the Gospels really are about is the reign of Jesus being established on earth. What the book of Acts is about is about how that reign, the reign of Jesus, goes from being established to being expanded throughout the world. Major concern for the author of Acts is how the expansion of King Jesus' reign happens through his church. We see this concern clearly in our text this morning. If you go to the very end of our passage, in verse 31, again, I'll read it one more time, it says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The sort of summary statement of what is happening here in the middle of chapter 9 says that the church at this time had a season, experienced a season of peace that during this time, in the middle of Acts chapter 9, it had peace and it was, it was being built up. That the, the church, they, they walked in a, a certain fear of the Lord, that they had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the church multiplied. It grew. It expanded we see that the, in the first section of Acts, chapter 6, verse 7, we see that God was taking root. The gospel of God was taking root. It was bearing fruit in Jerusalem. And, and as a result, it was experiencing tremendous growth and expansion. Now we see that this same effect is happening, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, in Samaria and Galilee and throughout the area, What we see in verse 31, it should be Parkview East. For us, a vision of what we want to see God do in this church today. Verse 31 is a verse that every heart in this room should long for. That every single one of us, if you call yourselves a follower of Jesus, that your heart should desire to see God do this exact same thing through our church. Verse 31 should inform the way that you and I pray for this church. And not just this church, but also Good News Bible Church, Life Church, Veritas Church, every church in our area, that they would experience this exact same phenomenon, a season of peace, that they would be built up and that they would be multiplied as they walk in a fear of the Lord and are comforted by the Holy Spirit. This should be how we pray for our people. It gives us a glimpse of what the church can be. This is, to be sure, sort of the industry standard, if you will. If you find yourselves maybe visiting Today, or maybe visiting a church at any time, point in time, you should be asking yourself, is this the real deal? Is this sort of the industry stand? Is it the real McCoy? And one of the questions you should be asking yourself is, how do you determine if it's the real deal? How do you determine if it is authentic Christian community? What do you look for? Well, in verse 31, it begins with the word so. Another way you could say it is, therefore, or thus. See, what precedes verse 31 is the story of Paul's conversion. We looked at the events back in May of Paul's conversion in the spring. The story continues here in chapter 9, verses 19 to 31, by telling us the effects of his conversion. And in this story, we learn what it produced in the church Peace, they were being built up, they're walking in fear of the Lord, they're experiencing comfort of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they're multiplying. It gives us an an understanding of how verse 31 came to be. This is fall, and there's all sorts of, you know, it's beginning of football season, all sorts of polls out there about which teams are ranked where. And if you pay attention to football, if you don't, that's okay, you're probably better off for it. You'll know there's all sorts of expectations, right? There's all sorts of expectations. How do you know if that team, the team that's ranked number one, two, three, four, or whatever your favorite team is, how do you know if they are the real deal? Well, you give it about three or four weeks and it'd be pretty easy to tell, right? How they play the game what the scoreboard looks like, what their record looks like. In football, it's it's pretty clear to tell if they're the real deal or not. They're either winning or they're losing. How do you do that in the church? How do you tell? Listen, I could go to my office or maybe some of your offices, and I could pull off a stack of books that would tell, instruct, give ideas on how to build or grow a healthy church. Book after book, book, idea after idea. How do you tell? Well, this passage, the passage before us, tells us precisely what you ought to be looking for. It doesn't tell us everything that exists, but what we will discover this morning is that authentic Christianity certainly is not less than this. Three things proclamation persecution, and community. Or let's just say people, to make it all P's. Proclamation, pulling a page out of Lynn's book here. Proclamation, persecution, and the people of God. As we consider Paul's story, his experience, his conversion, we see all three of these things, like threads woven throughout his story that produce Verse 31, a healthy, growing, multiplying church, a glimpse of what you and I ought to long for. And really, we see these three things, not just in our text, but if you go back into verses 15 and 16, you'll see them evident there as well. When when Paul when Saul was called to Jesus. Go back just a couple of verses to verse 15 and 16. This is a summary of what God is going to do in and through Saul. It says, but the Lord said to him, this is when, when Jesus is sending Ananias to Paul, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. All three things, proclamation, persecution, and the people of God are evident in that summary statement of how God was going to use Saul and they're also evident in our text here in verses 15 and 16. Paul's going to be a chosen instrument. He's going to be the mouthpiece of God's good news of Jesus Christ. He, and as a result, verse 16, he's going to suffer. He will suffer. Those two things are obviously in here. But the third thing you might be wondering well, where is in 15 and 16? Where do we see the people of God? How is God enfolding Saul into a community of believers? Well, here's how he's sending Ananias, his brother in Christ, to tell him how he's gonna use him. All three things evident in 15 and 16. If this was like a hyperlink, if you were to go and click on verses 15 and 16, it's as if it would take you directly to verses 19 and 31, and we will watch these two verses play out in our story before us. So first, proclamation. Proclamation, an essential ingredient in church health and growth, the proclamation Of the gospel. Gospel proclamation we see is at the heart of Saul's ministry and it is at the heart of this chapter. It's a necessary component of church growth and health. We see it mentioned several times in our text this morning that Jesus has transformed the persecutor into a proclaimer. Look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Look at verse 27. Barnabas describes his ministry in Damascus. He does so by saying he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 28. Describes his ministry then now among those in Jerusalem. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. We're given a glimpse of what the content is of his message. It wasn't just that he proclaimed. He proclaimed Jesus. His, his messages were Christ-focused, Christ-centered. In Damascus, Saul not only preached that he was the son of God, but also proved that he was the Christ. You can imagine how effective Paul's, Saul's argumentation was, how effective he was. He was a man who was incredibly proficient in the Old Testament, and if you would combine his knowledge of Scripture with his own personal experience that he had with Jesus as he encountered him on the Damascus Road, you can imagine that he made an incredibly strong case. Both his knowledge of scriptures and his personal experience, both of them were centered on Jesus. And one of the most powerful tools for us in sharing Jesus with others is our ability to speak about our own story, our own encounter with Jesus, our own experience with him. However, our testimony is simply not an autobiography. Our testimony ought to bear witness. Our testimony ought to speak Christ. Jesus must be the point and the power and the person of our story as we proclaim him at the content of our message. The proclamation of the Christian gospel is what produces authentic church growth and real church health it's what produces verse 31. You might be here today and think to yourself, I see what you're doing here. You're a preacher. How convenient. How convenient. Simply come to a text like this this morning, and you've identified an aspect of the text which supports your preferred model of ministry. Well, let's zoom out just a little bit and consider how we've kind of gotten to this point. If you look at where this section begins back in chapter six and seven, it begins with an accusation that's been leveled against Stephen that he was preaching that Jesus Christ was Lord. And the result of this accusation, what does it produce? It produces the longest sermon in the book of Acts. At the conclusion of his message, we learn that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the, Son, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's a declaration. Stephen's message is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this act, it brought about intense persecution that was actually led by Saul, which, which then the result of that was that the, the church was scattered about. And as they were scattered, we learn in chapter eight, verse four, what were they doing? They were preaching the gospel, as they scattered about. In chapter 8, verse 5, we see that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And what did he do when he went there? He proclaimed to them the Christ. In chapter 8, verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. They were baptized, both men and women. In chapter 8, verse 25, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom and the more of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. In chapter 8, verse 40, but Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, what did he do? He preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea. In chapter, here in chapter 9, verse 20, Saul's proclaiming. In chapter 28, he's preaching boldly. There should be no question, as we read up until this point, of the central focus of the proclamation of the word of God as it builds up the people of God. This is a pattern that we see not just in this section, but all throughout the book of Acts. All the way back to the Pentecost in chapter two. What happened as a result when the Holy Spirit led on them? A sermon was preached. In chapter four, verse two, the Sadducees are greatly annoyed because, why? Because of the teaching that the people are doing in the proclaiming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. In chapter four, 13, they recognize the boldness of Peter and John Not as they stand up behind a pulpit, but as they interact and they give a defense for the faith. They see these men who they see are uneducated and common people speaking boldly about Jesus. In chapter 4, 29, what do they pray for? As persecution sort of begins to be obviously coming their way, they begin that they would have continued boldness to continue to speak and proclaim Jesus And in verse 31, when they prayed, and the place that they were praying, they were gathered, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You can go on and on just in these nine chapters time and time and time again. And what will you see? An emphasis on the proclamation of Jesus. I want this point to be seared in our minds that the church is built up. Genuine church growth occurs as the gospel of Jesus is clearly proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the effect. So if we think, Parkview East, that we long for a chapter 9, verse 31 version today in Iowa City, it is Only possible if we as a church are committed to the faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a danger here. One of the challenges of a text like this, a remarkable story like Saul's, is that you or I might be tempted to say or think, well, that's Saul. He was a chosen instrument. Of course he should be participating in the proclamation of the gospel. God used him to write half of the New Testament. He should be using, this, is, this makes sense, to lay a foundation for the church's mission. There isn't another one like him. He's unique. But if you were to go back and read story after story after story, Stephen, Philip, Philip, John and Pe- these are normal common uneducated people who are boldly boldly proclaiming Jesus Philip does it behind a pulpit yep but you know what he also does it on a road in the back of a carriage the word that's used for his Speaking God's word with the Ethiopian eunuch is the exact same word that's used for him when he proclaims boldly in in front of other people. It's the exact same word. And as persecution increases, proclamation increases. This is a part of God's design for how to build up and grow and multiply the church. It happens at church on a Sunday morning, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're visiting us or you're looking for other churches, this should be a marker of a healthy church, the faithful, consistent proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it should also happen in community groups. It should happen when we gather outside of Sunday mornings, as we speak God's word into each other's lives. This is the type of work that should follow God's people throughout the city, wherever he has them scattered. It should, in the whole, our prayer is that the whole community will be infused with the gospel of Jesus because every day we are scattered about in neighborhoods and workplaces and schools. Whether it's with a colleague at lunch or a classmate for coffee, the question we should be asking ourselves this very morning is, are you positioned and ready to speak God's word with others? Are you? This is what he has called us to do because we belong to him. It's this very word that came flooding into our lives that transformed us. And if we long to see transformation around us, we must give ourselves to the faithful proclamation of his word. Some of us here this morning might be thinking, certainly not me. Doug, you don't know What I've done. You don't understand how little I know. You don't know my past. You don't know how terrified I am to engage with others and to speak about Jesus. Listen, this word should be in a tremendous occurrence. If you find yourself thinking those thoughts, this word. This morning should be a tremendous encouragement to us that if the Lord can not only redeem a person like Saul and use him for the advancement of his mission, then there is no one here this morning who's outside his reach and who he doesn't want to put to work. If he can do this with Saul, certainly he can do this with us. Secondly, that's the longest point, just so you know. Persecution. Proclamation. It's a major emphasis of this text and so far what we've seen in the study of Acts. But another thing that we've seen in other places and we see here in our text as well is that of persecution. As proclamation of the gospel happens, persecution for the gospel is a guarantee. Paul's persistent practice of proclaiming Christ came with a price, it was costly. He suffered for his testimony. We see that Paul experiences the fulfillment of Jesus' words in verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In Damascus, we're told that Saul became a wanted man. The Jews sought to kill him in verses 23 and 24, told that they're watching the gates night and day waiting to catch a glimpse of him so they could kill him. He's forced to make an ignominious escape out of a basket through an opening in a wall. Dramatically different social position than what he had once enjoyed. Very different, very different. Again, in Jerusalem, Saul finds his life at risk. We're told that the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, whom he had disputed with, that they too sought to kill him. You know, it's really amazing to see the transformation of this man in just 30 verses. The chapter begins with him leaving Jerusalem on commission of the high priest in full favor of the religious authorities of the day to arrest Christians and to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And here in verse 30, totally, totally dependent on fellow Christians to make an escape from Jerusalem, leaving Jerusalem both times, but in totally different ways. It's a remarkable transformation, and it's a reminder that God can change the most hardened of hearts and use them for his purpose. Change and use. Saul, the reality is, was called to suffer. And this is not... Some may look at this text and think, well, this is some sort of a sick payback scheme for all the damage that he caused. Might be thinking that this is Jesus' attempt just to get even, to get back at Saul for for what he's done to him, right? No, this is the path that God has called Saul to because this is the path that God himself chose Peter, when he writes, he says that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. Jesus himself prepared us, prepared us for a life marked by persecution. He says, listen, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you give yourselves to the gospel, and the proclamation of the gospel, you can anticipate to be treated like they treated Jesus. This comes with the territory. What Saul is doing here is he's simply following the path that Jesus himself walked. He's speaking boldly the truth about Jesus. And Jesus himself, we know, was full of truth and didn't shrink back from speaking and proclaiming it. Jesus himself was God's chosen servant, his instrument to do his work, to proclaim his justice to the Gentiles, to accomplish victory over death and to reign as king. He was chosen by God. But he was also a suffering servant. He died for our sins, he was pierced for our transgressions, and it is by his spilled blood that we are made right with God. This, brothers and sisters, while it's for none of us is it the path that we would choose, it's the path we've been chosen to walk, to participate not only in the work of Jesus, but to also share in his sufferings. So don't lose heart. The pain that some of you are enduring right now, the suffering that you are experienced, it is not lost. It is not unseen. God chooses to work through it to redeem it. So maybe the mockery that you tolerate every time you're around certain family family members who know what you believe, who know what you stand for, and who reject it completely and want to make a joke out of you. Or maybe it's the loneliness that you feel and endure in work or in the classroom because nobody else believes what you believe. Nobody wants anything to do with it. Maybe it's the the repeated pattern of being misunderstood or mistreated, or maybe it's being overlooked. Whatever suffering looks like for you, Jesus knows, He sees, He's called you. It's one of the joys the way that he has wired this thing is that he has called us as his people as we follow with him to suffer with him. And he guarantees that the reward will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Give me one second, I just lost my place. One of the downsides of using technology. All right. Finally, he's called us, we see in this passage. Verse 31 is produced through proclamation of the word and through persecution. One of the other beautiful things that we see here is the role that the people of God, the community of God, play in Saul's story. Saul had a similar experience in Jerusalem as he did in Damascus. In verse 26, we're told that he tried to join the disciples. Understandably, the disciples were filled with skepticism we told that they were afraid of him and didn't believe he was an authentic disciple. They had good reason to question. This is a man with a particular reputation, right? What they knew of this man was not good. They had heard of his conversion, but they hadn't heard anything from him. If you go to Galatians 1, we'll see that Paul tells us himself that for three years he went away to Arabia, and there's some dispute as to exactly when that happened. Was it before or after Damascus? But either way, they have no idea exactly what's been going on with him. So so what happens? Barnabas comes to the rescue. He takes Saul. He brings him before the apostles, and he testifies about him and defends him. He tells how he had seen the Lord and proclaimed the name of Jesus fearlessly in Damascus. It's because of this testimony that we're told that the community then accepts him as a Christian brother, as an authentic follower of Jesus, Saul's membership in the community of God is not a footnote in this section. Rather, it is a critical component of this story. And it ought to be of our story as well. First in Damascus and then in Jerusalem, Saul sought out the community of believers. In both instances God raised up advocates first Ananias and then Barnabas to ensure that that any hesitancy that was that existed to accept this brother would be overcome. Ananias in Damascus and Barnabas in Jerusalem can you can you imagine what might have happened if they were not a part of this story? If the welcome that they secured for him had not happened, The whole course, potentially, of church history would likely look different. Folks, true conversion always issues into church membership. Enfolding into the people of God, it's important for us to recognize, is a two-way street. New Christians, yes, are to join the Christian community. It's clear, Saul seeks them out. It would have been tempting to think, no way, if you were in Saul's shoes, no way will these folks embrace me. They know what I've done. They know what I'm capable of. They will likely reject me. They won't accept me. They will probably judge me. In fact, they might even look down on me. Maybe if you're here this morning, you found yourself thinking the same way. Have you have sought to step into Christian community? Maybe you've experienced the fear of rejection or judgment, and and as a result, you've sort of kept a distance from the people of God. If anyone can relate to you, it's Saul, the enemy, the persecutor of the church. Yet what did he do? He sought out Christian community. He knew for him to be a chosen instrument of God that, that he had called him to be, that he needed to be a part of the community Of God. But it's also important to remember and to recognize here that the responsibility was not just on Him. It's not only the responsibility of new Christians to seek out the community of God, the church, but it's also the responsibility of the church to welcome them in their presence those from different religious backgrounds or social or ethnic backgrounds, those who are different from us, those with a totally different story? Are we quick and ready to receive brothers and sisters who've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus? The church's willingness to welcome this man with a horrible past, it should challenge us today. How do we welcome those who are different from us? Would we, be the type of church that would embrace a man like Saul? Think about it. Would we be the type of people who would see a man like Saul walk in here and try to keep him at a distance, avoid conversation, talk to him maybe, but ask questions in the back of our head like, is this dude for real? Would we be the type of church that would willingly find ourselves communing with a man like Paul around a table in our home? Would we do that? Folks, Jesus Christ has welcomed us, you and me, into his family. And he says in the exact same way, you now go and welcome others for the glory Of God. It's no small thing here, the emphasis, the reality of of Saul instantly seeking out Jesus' people, being embraced by them. If we want to see God's work expand, we must recognize the priority of being connected to one another and our willingness to welcome others into our presence. Imagine what Ananias risked by defending Saul, his reputation. Both him and Barnabas proceeded in faith. They recognized the Spirit's work, and as a result, they were obedient to what God had called them to do. They were not primarily concerned or preoccupied with their comfort or with their presence, but rather with obedience to Jesus. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, our faith can become flat. And our impact can become minimized when we place our comfort and our preference above the Spirit's prompting. When we refuse to associate with people who we don't understand or who don't look or act or talk like us, we can miss out on the blessing that the Lord has called us for, has designed us for. It's so amazing to see how God has miraculously brought together this sort of band of misfits, common, uneducated, horrible stuff in their past. And it is through these weak, dependent people that he has chosen to pour his spirit out. And so for us, as his people this morning, our responsibility is to receive him with the open hands of faith, And to walk forward with him, one step after another, linked arms with one another in faithful obedience to King Jesus, proclaiming his name throughout all of life, work, school, church, neighborhood, family, boldly proclaiming it, recognizing that it will likely come with a cost, that not everybody's going to receive it. We'll probably go down in the reputation scale, not up. But one thing you can take to the bank is that we will do it together as God's people. And if we do that, chapter 9, verse 31, should be a reality for our church. At peace, built up, walking humbly, with the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplying. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we do just recognize this morning that you are a God who chooses to work through people. People not unlike Saul, who you call to be your chosen instruments. Father, I pray just like the church of Acts prayed, Lord, that we would be. Um, that you would fill us with boldness and that we would be faithful and continue to speak and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Lord, in all of our life, I pray you'd give us words to say, Father. I pray you'd give us strength. Lord, and I pray that you would, Lord, just deepen our dependence on you and our commitment, not just to you, but also to one another, to recognize that while we're an instrument, we are an instrument of instruments that you are using and working through, Father. Lord, we love you and we ask all of this In your name, amen.